0: Well, if you would like to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 15 through 17 today, and uh, you can hold your place there. Uh, We'll look at the text here in just a couple of minutes. Um, My second job out of high school uh, was at a wholesale company on the west side of Columbus. I worked there for six years, uh, did not enjoy it very much, but look back on it with great fondness. Isn't that just interesting? Um, And I think one of the reasons I look back on it with such fondness is because of some of the uh, colorful characters that I met uh, on that job, some of the most colorful people that I've ever known, uh, I know through that job. Uh, One of them was a man named Joe Craney, who um, was a guy that always had a a little short uh, cigar in his mouth. Uh, We called him Joe Cranky, because that described him, and uh, he he loved to say, when I was going to Ohio State at the time I had this job, and uh, so I would come in about 10.30 after some morning classes, and I would always go in, and I would say, good morning, Joe, and he'd say, morning, it's afternoon, fella, where you been? I never got around to explaining to Joe that it really wasn't afternoon until afternoon, but... He he, uh, he loved to uh, to ding me that I wasn't there when he had been there. Anyway, uh, one of my co-workers was the owner's son. And uh, we shared a name, his his name is Brian as well, and we became pretty good friends. And he had an interesting relationship with his dad, and he often shared their struggles with me. And, and so one of his frustrations was that he could rarely get his dad to agree with him about anything. And he had adjusted pretty well to this, at least at a surface level. And he had gotten to the place where he almost found it amusing. You know, it almost became a game to him uh, to see if he could get his dad to agree with anything that came out of his mouth. And so one day he, he told me, he said, Brian, it is the craziest thing. I literally cannot get the man to agree with me about anything. He said, I walk around the warehouse here and I I I just think real hard, what could I say that dad would agree with? And he said, and then I'll remember something that dad said to me just last week. And so I get all excited because I think he's going to agree with this because he just said it last week. And so I'll walk into his office and I'll repeat back to him exactly what he told me one week earlier. And he'll look up from his desk and he'll say, where'd you get a crazy idea like that? that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And he said, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it could be something like, hey, dad, I took your advice and I started saving money this week. Where'd you get the idea? Saving money is a good idea, son. He said, it's just crazy. No matter what I say, he doesn't agree. Even if what I say is obviously right and something he previously agreed with. As I thought about that story this week, the way that Brian felt about his dad, I think is the way many of us feel just in general these days. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that we live in a time where you just can hardly get people to agree about anything. You know, you can say something that you think is a universally affirmed fact or truth, something that you think is so plainly reasonable, and people look at you like you just said the craziest thing. We live in a time where people can't even agree on basic facts. Not just how the facts should be interpreted, but the basic facts themselves. And and you see this a lot in the political arena. And, And I've experienced this with increasing frequency over the past several years, even within the Christian church. No matter how basic, how fundamentally true of a statement you make, you can find a surprising number of people who will disagree with you, who who will have a different opinion, who who will tell you you're just really off base for thinking like that. And it gets to the point sometimes where you think, is there anything that I can say that is basic enough, fundamental enough, obvious enough that we all just have? Have to agree. Am I the only one? Anybody else have that kind of feeling? Today we're going to look at a a brief section of Scripture that outlines some truths that the Apostle Paul says should be affirmed by all Christians. Things that are so basic, so fundamental, so completely true and beyond debate. At least any reasonable debate. These are things that a Christian should be able to believe and say to other Christians with no chance of being disagreed with or with needing to be patient for 47 differing opinions that are articulated on the topics. So let's look at our text today, 1 Timothy 1, uh, 15 through 17. I'll read and you follow along as I do. Here's what it says. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. No disagreement. This deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners... Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So notice what Paul says here. This statement is, that he is about to make is trustworthy. And it is so trustworthy that Paul says it deserves full acceptance. Everyone should accept this. Everyone should affirm its truthfulness. Everyone should recognize that this is right and trustworthy. There isn't room for debate. The statement deserves full acceptance. And he then gives the statement that deserves full acceptance as well as some additional comments that then... Complement that statement, help to unpack that statement. And so from these verses, I want us to consider a number of things. I want us to consider why Christ came. I want to look at a number of things that are important for Christians to remember. I want us to be reminded of how people are saved. And then I want us to see what the purpose behind all of these things really is. According to Paul, These things should be universally accepted by Christians. Here's the first thing we learn. Trustworthy saying should be fully accepted. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. This is the essence of the Christian message. And there is a whole lot contained in that short little statement. Christ did not come to save good people. Because there weren't any, and there aren't any. Amen. This trustworthy statement deserves full acceptance. It, it forces us to deal with the fact, the fact that no one is righteous, that no one gets anywhere with God on their own merits, that no one can stand before God and be approved because of their wonderful attributes. No one can present to God a list of their accomplishments and impress Him. Christ came because mankind was and is lost and separated from God completely, completely without hope of escaping the just penalty that we have earned for ourselves because of our rebellion against Him. Christ came to save sinners. You and me, from the penalty that we rightly deserve. William MacDonald writes this, man does nothing but the sinning. The Lord Jesus does all the saving. It's not, it's not when it comes to salvation. Christ gives a little and we contribute a little. He does all the saving. We add nothing but the sinning. And this trustworthy saying that should be fully accepted forces us to abandon the claim that many of us have, both those who have received Christ and those who have not, that we are essentially good and righteous people. And it forces us to face the incontrovertible fact that people are sinners separated from God with no hope apart from Christ. This is why he came. Because a world full of sinners needed saving and they could not do anything to save themselves. So he didn't come to save good people because there aren't any. He came to save sinners. And this trustworthy statement that should be fully accepted also lets us know how that Christ came into the world for people who are far from him. He didn't come for people who, are, who, who perceive themselves as being close and being in the club. He came for people who are far from Him. In other words, He came after people who through their ancestry and their actions were separated from Him. Far from Him, not in a relationship with Him. People who through their ancestry and their actions belong to the kingdom of darkness rather than the kingdom of God. He didn't come for good people because there weren't any and aren't any. And he came centrally concerned with drawing people to himself who were and are far from him. I want to say that again. Christ came centrally concerned with drawing people to himself who were far from him. As Christians... Ones to whom Christ has committed the ministry of reconciliation. Ones that have been given the great commission. We must embrace, fully embrace. That we are to be fundamentally oriented, fundamentally concerned about, fundamentally motivated to reach people who are far from God. A significant danger for churches is the temptation to loosen our grip on this trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance and become satisfied with the church as a nice group of people, nice and good people, who encourage each other to live good and moral lives and be satisfied with that. Now don't misunderstand me here. That is a vital function of the church. Encouraging one another toward righteousness and good works. It is a vital function of the church. But we cannot be satisfied with this. Because Christ came for people who are far from God. And he committed to the church the ministry of reconciliation. And he gave us the great commission because he wants us also to be fundamentally concerned with people who are far from God. With people who aren't here yet. With people who have not yet received Christ as Savior and Lord. Rich Nathan, the senior pastor of Vineyard Columbus says that too many churches are like a box of puppies. They love to roll around over top of each other. They love to play with each other. They love to snuggle up next to each other. They even enjoy fighting with each other on occasion. But it's all about them in their box. The church isn't to be like a box of puppies. We aren't just about loving each other, though we are about that. There is a world that is far from God that we are called to reach, that we exist to reach. Trustworthy saying deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ came to save sinners and then Paul has more to say. Paul writes, he came into the world to save sinners and then he adds, of whom I am the worst. The worst. Now, I don't know if you've considered this, but this is an incredible statement to come from Paul. This is the very same man who in Romans tells us that those who have received Christ are now the righteousness of God in Christ. This is the very same man who in Romans tells us that there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. And it's the very same man who tells us in 1 Corinthians that we used to be identified by our sin, but no longer so. Because we have been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified. From this man who reveals to us in the scriptures so much of what it means to be a new creation in Christ, to be free from our past sin and our past identity, From this man who himself had become a new creation in Christ, from him we receive this. Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This tells me that there is something very important about Christians staying in touch with the reality that we too are sinners. Hopefully we don't dwell in sin. Hopefully we don't set up camp in sin. Christians shouldn't do that, but we do sin. We we have not been fully sanctified and we will not be fully sanctified until Christ returns. And so we need to stay in touch with our brokenness apart from Christ. It's important for us to remember where we came from and who we were before Jesus came into our lives. There is no condemnation in Christ that's absolutely true. Absolutely we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. But the truth is that people who are the righteousness of God in Christ are also and never move beyond being sinners saved by grace. Paul is under no condemnation but remains well aware of where he came from and who he was Apart from Jesus. You know, it has been my observation, uh, just as a Christian, uh, and even been more confirmed as a pastor, that, that often people who live the godliest lives are the people who are the most conscious of their own sinfulness. It's an interesting thing. People whose lives are just so surrendered to God. And yet they are so sensitive and tender to to the least wrong that they do. And Paul doesn't just say that he's a sinner, but the worst of sinners. And then he says it again in verse 16. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So he says it twice. He's really driving home the point, I am the worst of sinners. Now there's a lot that could be said about this statement, but here's what I think is the the most important thing to take from it. Paul had abandoned all hope and any thought of trying to justify himself before God on his own merits. Or by comparing himself to somebody else. He he truly understood what he had written about in Ephesians. Or what he wrote about in Ephesians. For it is by grace we've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. Paul had abandoned any thought of meriting anything with God. By clinging to some, some misguided thought of his essential goodness. Friends, if you're here today and you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is one of the greatest obstacles that people face in coming to faith. Their perception that they want to hold on to with a death grip that they are essentially good. If you're going to come to Christ and receive His salvation receive eternal life, you've got to to let let go of that. The, the, The Bible does not agree with you about your essential goodness. The Bible says that you are fallen, that you are sinful, that you are far from God. The Bible goes so far as to, to, to say that you're in rebellion against God. Timothy Keller has defined it this way, that uh, explained it this way, that all of us have de-godded God. We, we have taken God off of his throne and we've placed ourselves on his throne. And so we've got to let go of our, our belief that we are essentially good. And it's one of the greatest temptations for Christians... It's one of the things that can very easily cause us to abandon the responsibilities of the Ministry of Reconciliation and the Great Commission. We begin to think that we're good, and the people in the world are bad, and we increasingly surround ourselves with people like ourselves and isolate ourselves from other people. And if if Christians who do that aren't careful, and if we aren't careful, we begin to resent the bad people, the bad people. We, we begin to dislike even people who are far from God. And it isn't a very far leap from resentment and dislike to indifference or sometimes even hostility. But the people that we become indifferent toward or hostile toward, God loves, Christ came to, and we're sent to. There should be a lot more amens in here today but it's hard to beat amens out of people, isn't it? (laughs) Thank you, Adele. (laughs) Paul identifies himself as a sinner, as the worst of sinners. And then he articulates something that I think we need to be very careful to remember. He says in verse 16, he writes in verse 16, but for that very reason... Being the worst of sinners, for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So, we must remember, like Paul, that our lives are to be examples of God's grace to people who have not yet experienced God's grace. To people who are far from God. One of the reasons it's so important for us to never lose touch with where we came from and who we were before Christ came into our lives is because of this, that our lives are to serve as examples of God's unlimited patience for sinners. Paul considered himself a showcase of God's patience, of God's mercy, of God's grace. And each of us could, should consider ourselves the same way. I think it's extremely unfortunate when Christians, and there are a lot of reasons Christians choose to do this, but really unfortunate when Christians are unwilling to share the story of where they came from, what they were like before they met Jesus, how desperate their condition was before Christ. And we justify this in a number of ways. We say things like, well, you know, I don't want to give the devil the glory by sharing all the bad things in my life. Or we say things like, why should I keep talking about a person that doesn't exist anymore? And I understand the sentiment, and I certainly think our story should be shared thoughtfully with much attention given to determining what is appropriate and what is needed to share. All the gory details of your life are are not necessary. But I do think this attitude is unfortunate because it fails to consider what Paul teaches us here, that our lives are to be examples, our lives are to be showcases of God's patience, love, and mercy. Gary Demarest, in commenting on this verse, says, If God can redeem Paul from his guilty past, he can save me. If God can save me from my broken and futile past, he can redeem you. Our churches and groups are design studios where the models are being developed for people around us to see what God can do to create order out of chaos, beauty out of ugliness, and love out of indifference in these sinful lives of ours. How many people who struggle to believe that God would want anything to do with them, who who struggle to believe that God could forgive them, could be merciful and gracious to them, could redeem them, could make something good out of their lives, could see that possibility more clearly by hearing the story of God's work in your own life. Sue Bowles posted a, a great quote on Facebook this week. It said, a testimony isn't ours, that's a biography. A testimony, the story of our lives, is God's. A testimony is God's story through your story. I think that's a great quote. A testimony isn't ours, that's a biography. A testimony is God's story through Your story. You need to tell your story of God's grace in your life. You you need to, if you are, you need to stop withholding your story. Because it really isn't yours anyway. It's really God's story running through yours. The story is God's and God wants his story to be told. He wants his name to be famous. You need to tell the story of God's grace in your life. Stop withholding it. And I think I'm supposed to encourage some of you here today that have never been willing to tell anyone where you came from and how much grace you've received that you need to stop being so guarded about your life. That you need to stop hiding behind the I don't want to give the devil glory comment and the why talk about someone who doesn't exist argument. And you need to begin to tell God's story about your life. Do it thoughtfully, do it appropriately. You don't have to tell every detail, but tell God's story. It needs to be told, and God wants it to be told. And here's one of the most important things I think we need to take from uh, Paul's willingness to recognize that he was a sinner, the worst of sinners. And that is Paul's commitment to totally abandon the comparison game. And Paul's affirmation that our lives are to be examples of God's grace, mercy, and patience. So here's Here's what we need to take from this. Christians must remain merciful toward sinners. Christians must remain merciful toward those who are far from God. We can never become hard hearted. We can never become bitter, angry, resentful, or probably the greatest temptation for us, we can never become indifferent toward people who are far from God. Like Christ, we must be merciful toward the world that does not yet uh, know God. You know, I think it's easy for us to become hard-hearted. I think it's easy for us to become indifferent. You know, when you look at the sinfulness of the world, when you look at the condition of the world that we live in, when, when you look at the outright hatred that so many people have toward God, toward the Bible, increasingly even in our context even, toward Christians. When you look at the disdain that people have for truth and morality, it is really easy to begin to write people off. It is really easy to become hard-hearted. And before long, you're secretly desiring that God would give everybody what they deserve. I don't want what I deserve I do not want what I deserve. And friends, there's nothing wrong with righteous anger, but we can never allow ourselves to become unmerciful, uncaring, indifferent toward people who are far from God. We can never allow ourselves to get to the place where we wish judgment on people. And to avoid this, to remain merciful, we we can do it by remembering who we are apart from Christ what we deserve, and that God has not given us what we deserve. When we stay in touch with who we are apart from Christ, we can remain merciful toward people who are far from God, and we remain fundamentally concerned and motivated to reach such people because we identify with them. We identify with them. We remember the woeful condition we were in. We remember the awful fate that awaited us. And our hearts are filled with compassion for them. We are concerned for them. We are motivated to reach them. Paul tells us next in verse 16 how such people are saved. This too is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. People are saved. Passed from death to life when they believe on him. When they believe on Christ. When they do that, they receive eternal life. This truth is affirmed throughout scripture. To be saved, a person must believe and the object of their faith must be Christ. This simple statement lets us know that it is not true... That sincere belief in anything will save a person. No. It is only belief in Christ. And it lets us know that salvation is not received until faith is placed in Christ. So this simple statement refutes two widespread untruths that are commonly accepted in our culture and increasingly accepted in much of the church. It reveals as false the view that as long as you sincerely believe something, you'll be saved. The old all paths lead to the same place argument. And it reveals as false that a person can be saved without believing in Christ. This is called universalism, and it's the belief that the work of Christ saves all people, even absent faith in him. A trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, those who believe on him receive eternal life. If you have not believed on him, the Bible is very clear that you do not have eternal life. But God has made it very simple for us. It's not easy because we have to overcome our feeling that we're good and righteous and and somehow we should merit God's approval. So it's not easy for us, but it's very simple. We can be saved if we will simply believe on him, if we'll accept who he is, uh, what he says he can do for us, if we'll accept what he says that we need him. We'll accept these things. And and believe, turn to him as our only hope for salvation, we can have eternal life. And Christian, those of us who have already believed on Jesus, this truth cannot be compromised. No matter how many people say something to the contrary, this is true, this is trustworthy, this deserves full acceptance. It is only those who believe on him who receive eternal life. John 3.16 affirms this. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. Romans 10.9 and 10. Affirm this as well. If you confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. That God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with your heart. That you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth. That you confess. And are saved. Christian you must Hold on to this truth. Those who haven't received Christ yet, receive this truth. Surrender your life to Jesus. Believe on him and be saved. Believe on him and receive eternal life. Christ came to save sinners. Christians need to stay in touch with the fact that we are sinners We need to stay in touch with the fact that our lives are to serve as examples of God's grace. And we must remain merciful toward people who are far from God. We must believe that it is those who believe on Christ that receive eternal life. These are truths deserving of full acceptance. There should be no debate in the Christian church about these things. There should be no controversy about these things. These things are true and they should be fully accepted. And then 1 Timothy tells us what the purpose of all of this is the purpose behind Christ coming to save sinners, the purpose behind allowing our lives to be examples of God's grace, the purpose of salvation being available to those who believe in Jesus. Here it is, verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Why is it that Christ came to save sinners? For the honor and glory of God. Why is it that we can never forget where we came from and who we are apart from Christ for the honor and glory of God? Why is it that our lives must be display cases for God's mercy, His grace, His patience? Why is it that we need to understand that our testimonies are really just God's story running through our story and share it for the benefit of others? It is for the honor and glory of God. Why is it that churches must remain centrally concerned with reaching people who do not know Jesus? It is for the honor and glory of God. Why is it that those who believe on Him receive eternal life? It is for the honor and glory of God. To the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Why don't you stand?